1930s Paris, post-war London and the 60s at Sissinghurst. We've slipped the shackles of the studio this month to bring you a special on-location vintage podcast. Welcome to the Vintage Podcast, which this month comes from Le Beaujolais, which is the oldest French wine bar in London, and you may be wondering why we're here. And the reason for that is because I'm here with Sarah Bakewell, whose latest book, In the Existentialist Café, tells the story of modern existentialism. And, in fact, I'm actually going to get her to read a little section from the book because I think it will explain even better than I can why we are here in Le Beaujolais. So when you peer in through the windows of the Existentialist Café, the first figures you see are the familiar ones, arguing as they puff their pipes and lean towards each other, emphasising their points. You hear clinking glasses and rattling cups. The waiters glide between the tables. In the largest group in front, a dumpy fellow and an elegant woman in a turban are drinking with their younger friends. Towards the back, others sit at quieter tables. A few people are on a dance floor. Perhaps somebody is writing in a private room upstairs. Voices are being raised in anger somewhere, but there is also a murmuring from lovers in the shadows. We can enter and take a seat, perhaps in the front, perhaps in an unobtrusive corner. There are so many conversations to overhear, one hardly knows which way to wag one's ears. Now, Sarah, you mentioned clinking glasses there. We have got (laughs) two glasses in front of us, which contain apricot cocktails. We should probably say cheers, first of all. We're now going to clink. Salut. Um, (laughs) Explain to me why, because apricot cocktails are mentioned in the subtitle of your book. Tell, tell, tell us why they're so important to the story of existentialism. Yes, well, according to Simone de Beauvoir, um, it all began with an apricot cocktail in, towards the end of 1932 or maybe early 1933. She and Jean-Paul Sartre were sitting with one of Sartre's old school friends, Raymond Daron, in a cafe in Paris, and they were drinking apricot cocktails. And um, Aaron had just got back from Germany where he'd been studying this new kind of philosophy called phenomenology and he was so enthusiastic about it. He was explaining to Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir that if you apply this new way of philosophizing which is more concrete, more down to earth, it's based on description, it's a completely new beginning and it starts from everyday life as as we experience it. Mm. And so he said to Sartre, um, mon petit camarade, my little comrade, which is what they called each other since their school days, if you study phenomenology, you can talk about this cocktail and make philosophy out of it. And Sartre was so excited by that that he went rushing off to buy a book about phenomenology Mm. and then went to Germany to study its techniques and came back to Paris and founded what became existentialism as we know it. Now that you have this apricot cocktail in your hand, what do you think? It's very good. It's very good, actually. I think it's the best one I've ever had. (laughs) This cocktail actually contains, I think it's all alcohol. We have vermouth, gin, apricot liqueur, um, and Cointreau, I believe. So if you want the recipe, that is roughly it. I can't give you measures, but if you may remember from a previous podcast, the measures is the sort of the art rather than the science. It's up to you to find the right sort of uh, combination for you. But going back to to Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, Simone de Beauvoir in in the cafe, they... They used to work a lot in cafes in, in France, and I understand that Sartre was a big fan of being amidst sort of the bustle of a place like that. Yeah, 
but they worked in cafes throughout, particularly throughout the war years and um, and after in the 40s and 50s in what became the heyday really of Parisian existentialism as we think of it. Um, and there were several reasons. One was really very simple. In the cafes it was warmer than it was in the mostly rented hotel rooms that they tended to stay in in the early days. Hotel rooms sounds quite glamorous, but really they were more like DOS houses. They were right. very basic accommodation. Um, often no cooking facilities or just very basic ones. Um, so it made much more sense to spend your day in the local cafe, perhaps nursing a coffee mm. or a, a cocktail and making it last for as long as you could and, and working and also meeting friends, which is what they did. And this description of the imaginary cafe that I tried to conjure up in the book is that sort of scene where I imagine people coming and going and, and talking and arguing. There was an awful lot of arguing going on. Yeah. Um, but also developing their ideas and reading and writing. And when you see pictures of them in the cafes, often they're there with stacks of paper and, and pens by their side as they write their latest tomes. Many writers listening to this may be... I mean, because, of course, writers have their different ways of working, don't they? And some need absolute peace and solitude and couldn't imagine sitting in a busy cafe and getting anything done but he seems to have thrived on having that noise yeah Sartre said he liked having all of that bustle around him and that movement and um, he's not the only one because I think J.K. Rowling wrote mm. Harry Potter in Starbucks or <laughs> and and I sometimes write in those circumstances too because as long as it doesn't really concern you it's just it's nice to have a sense of life around you yeah. and I think that he felt that way as well and we'll uh, talk a little bit about Sartre's relationship with Simone de Beauvoir because you mentioned there that they, they would they would work together and that was kind of the, the real root of their relationship, wasn't it? That they were they worked together and of course they were married, but that was the nature well, they, of their relationship. They weren't married actually, but they had a they were in effect they were. They yeah. had a lifelong partnership. Um, they were together for over fifty years. They got together in nineteen twenty nine when they were very young. And it lasted until Sartre's death in nineteen eighty, so that's mm. you know, quite a successful relationship by anybody's standards but it was an unusual one because it was an open relationship they were free to have other lovers they had quite serious long-term relationships and in fact Simone de Beauvoir lived with um, other lovers with them particularly with Claude Landsman but she didn't she and Sartre never lived together right um, but what they did do was meet up every single day whenever they were if they were in the same city at all they would meet up every day and work side by side either in a cafe or in you know, wherever they were living. Um, and there's, there's little bits of footage where you can see them at their two desks. And, mm. and I think really that was the secret of their relationship because it was this writer's companionship based on work but also on talking, talking through all of their ideas together, their politics, their, you know, responding to the things that were happening in their lives, constantly reading each other's drafts and suggesting ways of improving them. And so it was a real writer's partnership. Mm. Now, anyone thinking that your book is a sort of dry, dusty tome about philosophy should know that there's a lot of sex in it, of course, as well, because that was the nature of, of these relationships. We, sometimes we talk about love triangles. You mentioned at one point that what they had at one point was more like a love pentagon because it involved so many people. Yeah. But that, that's another part of it as well, isn't it? This idea of, of the open relationship and, and the freedom that was part yeah, of it. Yeah, it was, freedom was one of the key ideas of existentialism, and they believed in applying it to their real lives mm. and living it's, best, you know, it's not easy to do, to live in accordance with the idea of freedom. They did try and do it. Um, and it was, it's a central part of the philosophy because um, existentialism says that you know, we find ourselves here, but then it's really up to us what 
we make of ourselves, what kind of being we're going to become, and that's something that's unique to humans. Mm. Um, but of course, a lot of the time, that's quite scary, so we try and avoid it in all sorts of ways. We pretend that we're tied down more than we really are. We pretend that we're constrained by our nature when, you know, maybe actually we, we could change it if we wanted to. Mm. Um, and particularly marriage, from their point of view, the classic bourgeois marriage that was conventional at the time would be a case of that really because it's pretending that you're you're shackled to somebody else mm. in a kind of permanent way when in fact you know that's not what it is to be human we're always free you have to decide every day you want to be with that person mm. so it's an ideal it's quite hard to achieve of course but that's what they were trying to do and um and, you know, along the way, they had quite a fair bit of sex with all sorts of people, especially Sartre, who's a bit of a serial seducer. And there are all kinds of stories of him, uh, um, sort of, well, one, one story, scurrilous invention probably by, by a journalist, was <laughs> that he um, sort of promised, he'd asked young women up to his hotel room to sniff his camembert cheese. <laughs> But, I mean, that was at the end of the war when it was actually very difficult to get good cheese. So, right, so you know, maybe that was uh, maybe a particularly appealing idea. <laughs> <laughs> now, weirdly as well, I remember another section of your book where, because he, he was, had this slightly strange aversion, didn't he, to sort of, well, to, to fluids or this idea of mm. viscosity, but that ended yeah. up becoming almost part of his philosophy, didn't he? He made it part of his philosophy. It's a typical way of, this fascinating way that his philosophy and his personal hang-ups and peculiarities would, yeah. would work together. Because he did have this sort of weird revulsion from anything like even honey that mm. you know honey that sort of flows slowly and sticks to things. Um, obviously, um, you know you don't have to be Freud to see the sexual implications of, of having a horror of that sort of thing. Um, and Sartre was very aware of it, but for him it was even more fundamental than that. It was about how we occupy the physical world, and mm. it's also again about freedom because um, he had a horror of being sort of the physical world kind of sticking to him and holding him down. Um, but of course, one thing always true because it, it's tempting to kind of laugh at Sartre for being a bit odd. But you have to remember that one of the reasons, well, the only reason that we know about this mm. um, obsession of his was because he tells us about it, right. and he tells us about it at great length in his philosophy books, especially being a nothingness as a whole chapter on the viscous. Mm. Um, and it's more than just a personal peculiarity; it is a, it's his way of explicating the philosophy, which makes it a very good read. Being a nothingness is quite turgid sometimes but at other times it's an absolutely brilliant read it's like reading a, a kind of a noir novel in places yeah. it's scenes featuring peeping toms caught on the staircase and somebody and um or you know the waiter in a, in a cafe like this one walking across the floor balancing a tray and how elegant it is but how he's sort of playing the role of being a waiter right um, and so there's all these little vignettes in the book that make it very enjoyable to read but it makes it a very particular kind of philosophy as well yeah so I think many people will have an idea about what existentialism is and it usually will involve a black roll neck a beret you know and, and kind of where we are now sitting in a, in a French cafe smoking gourwas but you know you, in your book you're sort of trying to actually look at what the philosophy meant how it was so shaped by the history of you know, the, the time in which they were living and and possibly you know sort of its relevance today and, and why it's worth sort of looking at again yeah, because there was a lot more to existentialism than the yeah. cafes and the jazz clubs and the cellars and the, you know all of that dancing till dawn. Mm. Although that was a part of it because it was connected with the idea of, of freedom that was so important to the existentialists. And it was connected with a historical moment because after the Second World War, 
you know, everybody was kind of unleashed, you know, and wanted, especially young people, wanted a new beginning. Um, but the the ideas that really drive existentialism are to do with what we are as human beings, so what kind of be- beings we are, and what we can do about it, mm. and responsibility that comes with freedom, responsibility for what kind of world we want to create. I mean, they, um, both Camus and Sartre commented at the the end of the Second World War after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that from now on, every day, human beings must decide whether they want to survive or not, whether they want to live. Mm. It's a decision, it's up to us. It's a very existentialist thought. Mm. Um, and it remains as true today, really, as it did then, mm. and as does the question of freedom. These are questions that don't go away, even when the fashion for black neck jumpers might come and go yeah. um, the question of freedom and being never does go away I think in the modern world we all think we're all terribly busy all the time, we're often staring at our phone, doing a million things at the same time, so that the technology that should make our lives easier is actually making us seem a bit more busy and is, is that another existential idea, that sort of, the, the fear of what you would do if you actually did contemplate total freedom? Definitely, it's fascinating the idea of smartphones as a kind of escape and the number of people I think who admit to using it as a kind of shield when you're on your own say in a cafe and you you don't know what to do with your eyes so you look at your smartphone or the need to sort of constantly be validated by people seeing what you're sharing and somehow that's reflecting an image of yourself back at you and and all of this would be regarded as bad faith as as that that sort of inauthentic way of being because um, it's it's making life easier it's making it, it has lots of benefits but it's it's not getting you any closer to to being yourself or, or sort of it's making you constantly more self-conscious and more reflected back through what you imagine are the eyes of others it's not even their genuine yeah. gaze it's what you think they might think of you if yeah, you yeah. post something particularly clever um, <laughs> And it's, there is this sort of great desire for authenticity going on at the moment, which itself um, can take inauthentic forms. You know, it's, we think that if we eat a certain kind of muesli in a breakfast bar, in a, sort of, in a, in a ser- special cereal bar like they have in, yeah. in the East End now, and, um, or if we put certain kinds of furniture in our house that we're somehow living a more authentic life. But yeah. of course, there's nothing authentic about that. That's just yet another mask and yet another pose. And um, it's the path to authenticity is never going to be that straightforward. But what it does reveal, I think, is that we have a great um, desire for it. It's like we're, we feel we're missing something more real and more fundamental. Mm. Um, to some extent, that's probably been the case for a long time. But technology really brings it to the fore and raises that question. The, the writer who wrote most about technology, interestingly, was Martin Heidegger, who's mm. another person I write about quite a bit in the book. Very problematic character, particularly because he was associated with the Nazis for a brief period yeah. and never convincingly disowned it. Yeah. But what he did do, which is fascinating, is write about technology in this way that is so relevant to us. I think, it, technology is not just about the devices that we use, it's about how we are, how we want to be, mm. and how we... Um, relate to our fundamental nature as human beings. Um, It's all mediated through technology and um, we have to think about it in that fundamental way if we're to take any kind of control of it or make sense of it, which is definitely more relevant. He couldn't have foreseen the internet or smartphones, but if he had, well if he had he would have been horrified. (laughs) 
<laughs> but uh, he would have had a lot of interesting things to say about it. Well, I just wonder whether Raymond Aron might have you know, pushed it across rather than an apricot cocktail. It might have been a smartphone and said, you could write philosophy about this. You yeah, know, well, the awful thing is that if you imagine that cafe today, you have I have this nightmare vision of no conversation taking place at all, but everybody sitting around the table just get at staring their at their smartphones. <laughs> <laughs> and that it would never have happened. They'd be no. drinking their apricot cocktails in silence. It would be a terrible thing. Well, they definitely wouldn't be doing that. We're looking around here in Le Beaujolais. Everyone is talking. Nobody has a phone out. Um, I shall let you carry on enjoying your apricot cocktail, Sarah, and explain to, to listeners who may be wondering where Alex Clark is this month. Don't worry, she's fine. In fact, she has been sort of a roving reporter and has been talking to Anthony Quinn about his new novel Freya on the streets of London and she's been down to Sittinghurst in Kent where she's been speaking to Juliet Nicholson about her book A House Full of Daughters and you can hear both those interviews now. So I'm here with Anthony Quinn, the author of Freya, uh, and we are standing in Doughty Street, very near Hoburn, in pretty much the middle of London, and we're standing beneath a blue plaque. And the blue plaque tells us that Vera Britton and Winifred Holtby lived here. Now, it doesn't tell us whether they lived here together. They did live here together, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, I read... um, Testament of Youth maybe 10 or 15 years ago and one of the most striking passages for me was when they moved in that they were best friends and they moved in maybe middle of the 19 no beginning of the 1930s when it was still probably quite bohemian for two young youngish women to to live together um, and I'd thought about this sort of scene of, of Vera and Winifred together in this rather beautiful old Georgian terrace. It really um, is beautiful, isn't yeah. it? We should and say it's sort of uh, March exactly. Moon, it's a kind of tall terrace, yeah. five floors perhaps. Yes, yeah, there's a kind of a, attic up there. Yeah, so it's a, I'd say it's sort of re- a Regency terrace. Um, Dickens, of course, just lived about ten, fifteen doors along the, the way, but this is the one I always that always sort of haunted me. Um, so I just love this idea of them. I think they maybe had the top floor flat, and you know they would be clattering away on their typewriters. Vera, a journalist; Nancy, a novel. Uh, Nancy, you see, Winifred, a novelist. Um, sort of quite competitive, I think. Um, I mean, they were deeply sort of um, loyal to one another, but I think they were. There was also that competition of you know when Winifred had her first novel published. I think I think Vera was a little bit upset as far mm. as I recall mm. from Testaments of Youth. Anyway, um, just incredibly cosy and bohemian and rather lovely and this made me think I would like to have my two main characters in Freya and, Na- Freya and Nancy living in a place like this. I just love this idea of this hive of industry right in the middle of Bloomsbury or on the edge of Bloomsbury. To um, say a very, very um, almost sort of so well-worn uh, topical thing. A writer just couldn't do that now. Two young writers no, starting out really. could simply not live in the middle of London like this. It would be very, no. very hard, wouldn't oh, it? It would be very hard. And I mean, I presume that they must have been renting it as well. I mean, I think it was a real rentier economy back then. Um, but yes, it, it's that romantic thing of two friends kind of living together in a beautiful terraced house. I imagine it was a bit shabbier than this, to be honest. I mean, this is, a, yes, this it's is rather a glorious <laughs> yes. house, isn't it? Um, it's been... Rather nice. You know, w- w- whatever it was before, it's been, it's been given a real makeover in the last 50 years, and it's, it's just 
tremendous. Um, but anyway, so this is this is what I thought about. This is part of what I thought about. And what we're going to do next is go to the actual street, not very far from here, five minutes from here, where Freya and Nancy actually lived. So it wasn't here, it was a bit further along. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. So we've walked sort of through the back streets. We actually went past a, a, another plaque, a plaque for Dorothy L. Sayers right. on the way. So, you know, as you say, an incredibly literary uh, area. And of course, really, really not very far from you know, Bloomsbury, the heart of Bloomsbury. Right, yes. um, but we have fetched up at a house, very, very nice house, and one without a plaque on it. Uh, this is where you place Nancy and Freya. And just to explain a bit, bit, Freya is a character we've encountered before, albeit rather sort of marginally, in yes. your novel, Curtain Call. Yes, indeed. She was a 12-year-old girl in Curtain Call, the daughter of Stephen Wiley, who's one of the main characters. She's a rather bolshy and sweary and willful and slightly abrasive miss in Curtain Call, and she's pretty much all of those <laughs> things again uh, when we see her um, in Freya. Um, so, so Freya's had a good war. She's come out of the war in 1945. She's been in the Wrens. Um, that's the 1945 section when she goes to Oxford and, uh, and is sent down for uh, being too ambitious, as it turns out. Anyway, this is the 1954 section when Freya and Nancy are... We, we find them in the middle of things and they're renting... Again, it's going to be a top-floor flat. It always is. Yeah, the young have, be, have, to, have, have energetic yeah. legs and can right. look out across London. Yeah. So this is, again, it's, it's, it's different from Doughty Street. I think this is earlier than Doughty Street. I think it's about... I think there's a little, one, a little kind of plaque or what do they call them? Cartouches with the date. I think it's 1721. So this is actually... It's narrower, isn't yes, it? It's, it's narrower, more sort yeah, of it's built, it's squirrelly. Than, yes. And beautiful, long row of undamaged buildings here. It's probably one of the longest single Regency terraces in the whole of London. Anyway. Well, of course, as many people will know, uh, well, anybody who's ever been to London and, and people who haven't too, it's rare because so often you just walk past mm. a gap, don't yeah, you? Right. And it is a bomb damage gap bomb in which, gap you know... They, they, some builders got hold of it and, and decided to... Uh, I mean, I presume this is now actually a grade, grade two or even grade one listed street. Uh, I don't think you could could take it down. There I, actually I, isn't a coffee chain, chain on it, no, is there? No, not at all. No, there's not a single... Straw single. might be there's the only street right in on London. Edge, but that's actually on Rugby Street, so <laughs> um, the Rugby Tavern. Anyway, um, I just had this... Uh, this is, my, I think, probably my favourite street in the whole of London, and I thought, if you're going to be writing quite a long section about where Freya and Nancy are living, choose a street that you walk down that you know and love, and this is it, and this is the house. I don't know why I picked number 11, but this is what it... This is the one I, I alighted on. Um, it's got a beautiful uh, curved uh, sort of fan light. Mm, very uh, ornate. And, a, and yeah, and a, and a carved um, door case as well, which is also quite ornate. Um, so yes, again, I mean, in the 1950s, I imagine it was rather sooty and blackened. It was sort of rather shabby genteel. It's not that anymore. These buildings are mostly owned by law firms, I think. But in, those, in, those, in these days, you can, in, in, in the early 50s, you can imagine this was a place where young people, young aspiring people, could rent a room, rent a, rent a flat. And so this is, where, this is where they were. And I love having this kind of 
this sort of very site-specific thing in my mind because writers, as you know, spend a lot of time in their heads, and I like to just get out and walk around London and to feel that I am describing pretty much the places you know I know and can imagine people living albeit 60 years ago. Did you, during the, the writing of the novel then, return here? Did you well, come I and have a little anyway, sort yes, of reverie and yeah, a, a kind of thing? I mean, because I, I, I come round here quite often. Sometimes I walk into town um, and I always sort of go out of my way to come down this street. Um, you've got... Um, Bedford Road down there. So this is actually a kind of bit of London I know pretty well. It's funny that way in a huge city one always has these tiny corners that are famous. Of course you are a Londoner now, you know, you've, you've lived in London for a long, long time. Years, You're yeah. not a Londoner by, no, by not birth. not as you can probably tell. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, but I've lived in London longer than anywhere I've lived in my life. I mean, even though from my accent you will know that I'm from the North West, but I didn't live in Liverpool for, I lived in Liverpool for 18 years and then I left for college. So actually I do feel an honorary Londoner. If yes. If they'll have yeah. me, um, <laughs> well, so, uh, yeah, it, it, and, and London is the is the place where I've sat, you know, four out of my five books, and I dare say I will, I will continue to because it's so, so, um, so rich and, and it's so mysterious still to me in a way. It's very important, of course, if you are able to give a character somewhere to live near the centre of town. I mean, there is, as we know, great poetry in the suburbs yeah. uh, and the outskirts of marginal bits of places. But of course, it's very handy because they can always be nipping in and out and doing exciting right. things. I mean, you know, know, a cocktail is not far away at any <laughs> point. Well, exactly. And that's why, in fact, um, Jimmy Erskine from Curtain Call, who appears ah, in Australia as well, Jimmy he, Erskine. he lives quite near here too. I mean, he lives about way 10 minutes, I guess, um, down the road, very near to the British Museum, and again, yes, so he's contiguous with the the West End, so he can just like finish his coffee, nip out, you know, go for a little stroll to his, you know, haunts, um, and I, I, yeah, exactly. It's it, it's it's great to have these these places so close together, restaurants and um, clubs and bars and places and where dangerous things can exactly, happen yeah, too. Um, gentlemen's conveniences and uh, oh yeah. let's talk about jimmy erskine <laughs> i'm so delighted that he made a return in this book oh, he basically sort of gives freya a kind of you know a leg up yeah, yeah. but um, i loved him in the last book as i think i've said to you uh that moment of him coming back to his flat now you have worked as a critic mm-hmm. work as a critic i too do we really come back to our flat late at night knowing that we have a deadline and call for a glass of hock and half a cold roast partridge? I often do that with Rachel, actually. <laughs> say, can I have the hock and partridge menu, please? Uh, but rarely Is it forthcoming, though? Actually, yeah, you know, exactly. Uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of, you know, old it, hurrah yes, of that exactly. sort of world. I mean, it's, it's lovely. It's, it's what I think um, Jimmy would have done. I'm pretty sure that James Agate, who Jimmy is based on, would have probably would have had a, you know, a, a snifter before he settled down to work. Um, it's a it's a romantic thing about journalists, isn't it? You know that they can fuel themselves on booze. You and I know that it's actually quite difficult to do that. Yeah. You, know, you can drink afterwards, yeah. but you can't drink before, and you can really not drink even during. But I like the idea of you know Jimmy sort of the Sybarite 
drinking his way through the night and finishing. He's quite hard-working as well. Yes, produces you know. this kind of peerless I mean, copy. Yeah, and he, That is the dream, isn't it? Of that's course that's it is. the wonderful dream. And Freya becomes one of these people in a way too, doesn't she? In a very different setting. And of course, as we know, you've moved the action on from yeah. Curtain Call by a couple of decades. I think one of the things that helps me to get a character is where they live, mm. actually. Yes. You know, um, why she chose this place, I think she found it in the standard, actually. I can't remember. I think she actually found an advertisement for it. But if I can get somebody's name right, a character's name right, and then I can get where they live, um, the rest just follows, actually. And, and, and But, but live, where you live is so important. Yeah. The kind of... Yeah the area you've chosen to live and it, it's really helpful and, and this you know this is probably not very different from how it was in 1954 yes that's the really amazing um, thing you know, I they, mean she would, have, she would have come out the door and seen that pub at the end of the road and we would have seen that amazing um, Victorian um, block of chambers down there which I presume is a law firm she would have looked up there to, what's that? That's Theobald's, one of the fields. Theobald's, Theobald's oh. Road, isn't it? That's yes, we're looking up towards Theobald's Road. Yes. So, of course, as you said before, this is a very, very legally-minded part of yes. the town. And you're right, lots of law firms have their, their offices here, but there are also the great inns of court. You know, there are, there's a lot of history around here. Shall we walk as we go? Yes. Um, yes. So what we're going to do now is um, we'll... See, they're all taken these houses, apart from these two at the end. And I've, I have a sort of dream one day. Of a lottery-style dream. Yes, a lottery-style yeah. dream. I, I, I can't even imagine how much they, they cost. But, again, they're rather beautiful. And they've got that rather sort of early Victorian, well, sort of late Victorian, early Georgian feel. Um, see this one on the end. I think it's number 40. It's, just, it's been abandoned for quite some time. But, yeah, exactly. If I win the lottery... <laughs> um, that's the kind of place I'd like to live. Um, I right. rather like the name of this barber's shop, by the way. Is... Gentleman's Vanity. Well, <laughs> yes, Jimmy Erskine, eat your heart out. And now, once again, we're in sort of... Well, it's basically a little medieval here, isn't yes, it? Let's it is. be honest. And, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's rather Dickensian. You know, um, in fact, Dickens' biographer, uh, John Forster, lived in a building just across the way there. Um, you've got the Royal College of Surgeons just there, and you've got the Inns of Court down there. And right here, as we go underneath the arch, is Lincoln's Inn itself, which is one of the most brilliant little backwaters you can imagine. Let's just describe to people, we're standing in uh, a square. New Square, it's called. New Square, with a... Perfect lawn in yeah, it's view. It's like a college, isn't it? It's like yeah, sort of off, it is. Off it off is. Cambridge College. Most um, impressive buildings on on all sides. Um, towers, chimney stacks, a church in the corner. What goes on chapel. here? It's, it's the mix of architectural styles, as you said. So we've got this new square here, which is classic, sort of um, late 17th century, I guess. Uh, and then you've got this Victorian bit here that looks like um, looks like Balliol in, in Oxford, in fact, which is I think I mentioned this in, in Freya. Um, so this is where Freya walks through. She 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 discovers this little walk. Um, this is sort of equidistant between where she lives in 
in uh, Great James Street and where she works, which is Fleet Street, which is about five minutes walk that way. So this is, this is a sort of midpoint. It's incredibly quiet. You'd hardly know you were in London here. Would no, you? not it's at so all. It's so quiet. You've got the little fountain flashing in the background. Green lawns, beautiful. It's, and it's, it's so evocative to me, this. I, and, and, I, and I can imagine her coming at lunchtime to, to eat her sandwich or whatever. Um, it, it's a great sort of place of contemplation, which, she, you know, she's, she's caught in such a kind of busy life. I think she likes the, the idea of somewhere that's tranquil and rather tucked away and secretive. This is an oasis here, isn't it's it? It's lovely, isn't yeah, it? It's it beautiful. really is lovely. So that, this, this bench here, is where she sits when, um, in the second part of the novel, she's just sort of idling away at a, a lunch hour. She's sitting on this bench, looking at that chapel window there, when Alex, her old friend from Oxford, just happens past. My, my books are full of kind of coincidental meetings. And Much like Dickens. Well, <laughs> it's the only thing I've, I, I can possibly have in common with him. But um, So I, I just like the idea of people just sort of bumping into one, one another, which they do. They do in real life. Um, she was sitting here, Alex passes, and then it sets in motion a plot, which I won't describe here, but it's... It comes back to sort of haunt the book, this place, because it's also where she meets in the third part of Freo, eight years later, um, her old friend and now sworn enemy, Robert. And so there's a sense of poetic justice, in a way, because she's, she's meeting him to try and bring him to account. Uh, poetic justice being that much nicer than... We should it. say that, that these, these benches, very smart black benches, very nice, but they are distinguished really by the fact that they are in front of the most extraordinary pair of wrought iron gates. Mm. I think I've ever seen. There's a date on them, 1863, and a name, Brewster. No idea what no Brewster idea. is. It's probably in Pevsner. I, I haven't looked that up actually, but yes, it's a great, wonderful iron screen gate. Um, 1863, of course, Thackeray died. (laughs) This is the kind of useless... You need to go on pointless. Almost, certainly. (laughs) Or or, or just be pointless, which is... um, Now, there's one tiny little story, which is a bit wick as well, but that um, amazing chapel window there, which we can see in all its glory, that was um, so valuable and so prized that during the war when the blitz was about to start they took every single pane of that glass out and hid it somewhere i think probably in wales in one of those kind of quarries which they you did mean you the think other. they really got everything out of london well they got everything out of that bit of the yeah. chapel anyway yeah. um because they just didn't want the uh, the glass to be bomb damage which it almost certainly would have been in yes. the in the 1940 the december 40 blitz or even or even later but I, I love the foresight of that, that they actually just basically, you know, looted the whole place and took it away yeah. and, and saved it. Um, and the level of care wh- at know, a time when, know. you know, in other ways, more, more pressing well, things quite, were yeah, going. Well, evacuating yeah. people. Yes, yeah, I like that idea yeah. that, you know, that they, they, they valued it that, that highly. Um, but I, again, I just can't get over this place. It's just so, so beautiful. And I... I I feel every time I, used, I, I, I walked through it, I thought, I'm so glad I'm setting the book, part of the book here, because it's, you know, I can imagine every little detail of it. I don't have to imagine it, I can see it. Um, and I think that's about, 
I think that's about it, really, on Freya, on, on Freya in this part of the world. That was just wonderful. Thank you so much. And what a lovely, lovely day to come and walk through the beautiful parts of London. I know, I know. Um, we're so lucky to live here. I can never take this place for granted. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you. I've come down to Sissinghurst Castle in Kent um, so that Juliet Nicholson can tell me about her book, A House Full of Daughters, which we've, we've just been chatting about. It's not a house full of daughters, is it, Juliet? No, it's not a house full of daughters. It's a house full of daughters. It's a place full of daughters, whether it's a house or a book. It's full of daughters. That's what I've been writing about. I've been writing about daughters in my family. And how all women are daughters, whether they're only children or sisters or they become mothers or whether they don't. They're all daughters. It's the one thing that every single woman on the planet has in common. We might be an aunt, a mother, a granny, a friend, a cousin. We can be any or all of those things or none of them, but we are absolutely guaranteed to be a daughter. Sons are more, um, not necessarily isolated, but more individuals. And that daughters have been encouraged to be part of a kind of grouping. And therein sometimes lies the problem. Because yes, when yes. you want your independence and you want to go off and be like a son can be, you may have a bit of a struggle. Well, that comes across unbelievably clearly in the very opening of the book. I mean, this goes right back, doesn't it? It goes right back to, I'm going to get this wrong, your grandmother's grandmother's that's grandmother? Is that right? No. no How no, many great, great, great? Absolutely right. It's my grandmother's grandmother, a couple of greats. Um, and her name was Pepita. And she was born in Malaga, in the south of Spain, uh, in 1830. And she was born to a washerwoman and a uh, street barber. And her father died when she was very little. And her mother was a very feisty woman, ambitious for her little girl, who showed very early on this incredible talent for dancing. And so with Pepita's mother's help, Pepita became... The mother went out to work, saved and saved, washed and washed a lot of clothes, washed and washed a lot of sheets, uh, did a lot of mending, saved up for her daughter, sent her to flamenco school. And Pepita became the most famous, she was a superstar mm. flamenco dancer uh, by the time she was 20. Everybody had heard of Pepita. But her mother then did sort of terrible things to her, didn't she? Um, although, I have to say, without one of them, I mean, your story wouldn't sort of, as it were, kind of exist, because she got married, and her mother, not approving of this marriage, told her new husband that his wife had been unfaithful to her and told her daughter that her husband had been unfaithful to her and the marriage was wrecked. Yeah, Pepita's mother, her name was Catalina, she was she was a she was an absolute meddlesome so and so and when her daughter became very successful catalina's ambitions for pepita increased even further and thought that maybe pepita could have a marriage with even somebody from say a royal family which would have put the icing on the cake for catalina Trouble was, Pepita had already married her dancing teacher in order to get uh, reduced 
rate for the dancing lessons. They were Catholic, divorce was out of the question. So Catalina sort of took it into her own hands, as mothers sometimes do, <laughs> and thought that she could undo the arranged marriage. Um, but actually, uh, she, she never did. Pepita never did uh, divorce her, her dancing teacher husband. Um, but she, instead, she fell in love with an Englishman, um, an English diplomat um, called Lionel Sackville West. And the older. The older. Because there are two Lionels in the there book. There are two Lionels in the book. Yes, yes, there are. But the first Lionel, the older Lionel, um, was an unmarried diplomat who uh, saw Pepita on the stage with her extraordinary hair that went almost sort of down below her bottom um, and her incredibly sexy dance moves. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous <laughs> the way she moved around the stage. Men would pull flowers from their wives. This is the um, middle of the 19th century. In the middle of the 19th century, on the great stages of Europe, in Stuttgart, in Vienna, in Berlin, in London, in Paris, Pepita would take the place by storm, and men in the audience would grab the flowers from their... Uh, wives' beautiful hair arrangements where they would wear fresh flowers in their hair and hurl the flowers onto the stage to their wives' absolute rage. Anyway, one of these men was um, Lionel Sackville West who uh, was smitten with uh, Pepita, went round, knocked on her hotel door, found out where she was staying and basically moved in and together they had uh, seven children. Despite never being able to marry because she wasn't divorced. Completely illegitimate. Incredible. Uh, children. Um, and he was a man of some position. Mm. He was uh, uh, it, well, uh, in the um, foreign office, as it were, in, in Paris and in Madrid and um, subsequently in Washington. He was a top man in, in, in the diplomatic service. Um, but he got away with it somehow. It is incredible. And I mean, you, you obviously talk about this in the book. and how, But they sort of just did it, didn't they? They just lived the way that they wanted to live. And, they did. You know, I, I mean, mean there, were, there were problems with that for them. But there were. I mean, it was sort of OK for him, really. Because mm. he could swan around visiting Pepita whenever he wished. It was less easy for her. First of all, she had this increasing brood of children, like a little mini kindergarten by the end of it. Um, but also society, um, with a capital S, in the uh, small town that she'd um, moved to in the south of France, gossiped, mm. disapproved, uh, knew that she was an unmarried woman, although she had little calling cards calling herself Countess West. They were completely bogus cards because mm. she was an unmarried, unmarried mother. It sounds like something children. out of Henry James, doesn't it? It's very, it's... very Henry James or Maupassant or something, yeah. or Balzac, or if I'm getting that right. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, it's a terrific story. It's a terrific It's a rip-roaring way to start the book. I mean, you know, there are terrible things that happen. I mean, what the terrible thing that happens is that Pepita dies in childbirth, mm. um, leaving your great-grandmother, yes. who's a very 
young child. I mean, and she was sitting there with her mother's body. Yes. And she was, what was she, sort of seven or eight? She was, ni- she was nine years old. Mm. Um, and uh, she was the oldest of, she wasn't the oldest child, she was the second oldest child, but she was the oldest daughter. And so it fell to her at this very, very young age to care for her, these motherless uh, siblings of mm. hers. Well, the father, Lionel, carried on with his diplomatic career and, and um, swanned off to uh, take up his duties in um, Argentina and um, didn't even barely, barely return to visit mm. all his children, who went to live with the local station master and his mother, who took them in and looked after them. Lionel sent money, but he never sent himself yeah, and yes. his love. These unorthodox relationships, or, or occasionally people just bucking against the orthodoxy, sometimes more complicated and painful human situations. I mean, they unspool throughout this book. It's a baton passed from generation to generation, isn't it? And I think we should talk a little bit about where we're standing, because the original sort of seat of the family was no, wasn't it? But then we're in Sissinghurst, and that is where your grandmother and her husband, Harold Nicholson, just came and fell in love with. Yes, and Vita was um, born at Knoll, at this huge 365-room house in Sevenoaks in Kent, um, to uh, Pepita's daughter, Victoria, and um, her cousin, who she had married, who was also called Lionel. And Vita was the only child of that marriage. And she, um, for a long time, was the, the darling daughter, the darling child of Noel. But she was a girl and she couldn't inherit. Mm. That was the law. Uh, that some, in some places still is the law that the girl doesn't get it. The nearest living relation that is male is the person who inherited who inherits these great estates, these great houses. And so Vita, after her father died um, in 1928, uh, was suddenly divorced, as it were, from uh, this place that it's she loved. It's staggering, isn't it? When any. you think of, and cast out of your home, really, to all intents and purposes. Outrageous. <laughs> I stand here saying that. It was. It really came very close to breaking her heart. And uh, yet, she was married to this fantastic man, Harold, my grandfather. And together, they found a, not exactly a replacement, but somewhere, itself a broken place. Sissinghurst was almost a ruin when in 1930, Vita. It had been used as a poorhouse, hadn't it? It had become a poorhouse. It had been a great, great house. Uh, It had been built, really. The great house had been built for the arrival of uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth I. And we are standing now in one of the rooms that was one of the few rooms that remain. That was a a room built for the purpose of Queen Elizabeth I's visit in um, 1563. And... uh, it is actually a lovely room. It's, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's in a, what is really a, a, a kind of small cottage, you know, is not part of the sort of great grandeur, mm. um, surrounded by, by the gardens for which Sissinghurst is so famous. But you come upstairs to this bedroom, which is entirely brick, raw brick uh, on the walls, wonderful tapestries, a, a bed from, I don't know when that the bed, bed comes from. The bed is from Noel. The bed is, wow. is Fita's childhood bed. The bed is the bed she was born in. Um, and she brought it with her to to Sissinghurst when she came. Um, she didn't die in it. She died in another part of the of the house over in the near the White Garden in the little cottage at the White Garden. She died there. Um, but this was her bed, and this was the room that she um, brought her lovers to. My my grandfather's bedroom is next door. <laughs> So this is. This I think is, you say in the book that their marriage had a lot of generous spaces in it. Yes, yes. Let there be spaces in your togetherness. It's the great Khalil Gibran quote from the Prophet, which was Vita's sort of great mantra, really. Let there be spaces in your togetherness. And actually, it's a jolly good. I think it's a jolly good thing to follow I, 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 I approve of that Let well it worked spaces. extremely well for them didn't it it worked for them it worked for them and uh, yeah this room is um, part of the old house so this what is now appears to be a cottage was actually a corner of the original mansion that was built for um, the arrival of Queen Elizabeth I and the great attraction for Vita of this whole place of Sissinghurst was that it itself was something of a place crying out for help, crying out for rescue, as she was after she was denied uh, Noel. And so gradually she and Harold together began to restore it, not really in a conventional way that you'd think of restoring a house now. And she, she wouldn't have any plaster put on the brickwork in this room. She thought the brickwork, with all its sort of beautiful... Well, it is beautiful, isn't it? And, 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 and russets and all the lovely colours of really old brick was more lovely than having plaster over it. But what they really did, this great wonderful sort of creative act that they did was of course the garden itself outside the brick in the garden on the earth and um, the the garden here at Sissinghurst is I mean for me I've known it all my life and it is it's it is it's the place I go to when I feel uh, in need of some sort of um reassurance some sort of stability it's represents that to me even when I can't actually physically be here it's where I go to in my mind because it's continuous because I've known it forever because although it changes with the seasons obviously the essence of the place is the one that I knew when I was very very little and I find that extraordinarily comforting Intriguing stuff there from Juliet Nicholson and Alex Clark. Now that is an excerpt from a much longer interview in fact where Alex was given an amazing tour of Sissinghurst by Juliet and you can hear the whole thing by searching on SoundCloud or iTunes for Juliet Nicholson, A House Full of Daughters, off the page. And that just about wraps things up for this month. Next month we may be heading back into the studio but we shall be no less intrepid in our travels, hopefully travelling through time once again. And we hope to see you all then. Take care.